She's a religious ethicist, sartorialist and cultural critic. At least that's what it says on her website. Liz Bukar is a very outward-facing scholar. Her latest book, Pious Fashion, How Muslim Women Dress, has been widely reviewed and well-received, and she's written articles for the LA Times and The Atlantic, among others. She's an associate professor at Northeastern University and one of our senior fellows at Religion and Its Publics. And she joins me, Jane Little, for this edition of The Square. Welcome, Liz. Thank you for having me. You have your own website. You do very public scholarship. You're more out there than most. Why? Well, I'm going to credit this project, actually, Religion and Publics, for a lot of that. This is very new for me. Um, I would say I was, um, I often say I was part of the problem a couple years ago. I did not return journalist phone calls, didn't have time, did not think about producing law public scholarship because frankly I didn't need to I didn't need to to get tenure I didn't need to to you know make it through promotion as an academic um, and something's changed the last couple years um, especially politically in the US that made me feel like that's something that I wanted to do and I can do it now from my position and sort of not to do it is is really a shame so there's so much talk these days in academia about impact mm-hmm. is it meaningful Oh, I hope so. <laughs> I mean, by that, I mean, is it meaningful talk? Um, in the olden days, it was it was ivory towers and, yeah. you know, and, and lock your door and get on with your, your books and your monographs. Yeah. And now it's all about building bridges and being out there and having impact. Yeah. And I'm just wondering how, how meaningful it is and does it mark a real shift? I think it marks a real shift. I mean, it certainly marks a real shift for me. I'm someone who's trained at those ivory tower institutions. I'm trained at... Harvard and the University of Chicago, and I thought about producing and did produce scholarship for my small cohort of people that would, you know, would um, go through all the jargon and the technical work. Um, and I think that there is not only, it's not only lip service, um, but there's a real interest in being publicly engaged in a new sort of way. I mean, look, I'm at an institution like Northeastern University, which has a very outward-facing um, profile with their, with their scholarship and always has, and being in a place like that makes doing public scholarship very um, easy for me. They don't, it's not a risk in terms of um, my status or position at the university. Um, I think that there is, it's probably in that way a really good model for seeing public-facing scholarship. It's not less rigorous, it's not less important, it's rigorous in a different sort of way. I know for me it really changes the way the questions that I ask and the topics that I want to pick up, but also the way I write and think, um, realizing that I want to communicate in a, to a different sort of audience. Um, it makes my scholarship more rigorous, not less. And I think that Northeastern is a place that really has acknowledged and supported that. That's interesting because there is a certain sniffiness still yes, in yes. many quarters that you're actually dumbing down. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, think that I'm, that I come out of that tradition. I was saying over dinner last night that, uh, you know, at University of Chicago, as a graduate student, I would have seen someone, doing, particularly a woman, doing public intellectual work. I would have seen her as not able to sort of make it in the other sort of more regular scholarly peer-reviewed um, world and I, th- I think that that's just, that's just not just not true um, uh, and I, I hope I think that that is shifting as well and quite honestly I don't care if it's not I'm tenured it doesn't matter anymore what people um, think about me I know that I would much prefer to have a piece in the Atlantic and reach that sort of audience than a piece that's writ- read by 500 or 100 or 30 of my closest colleagues um, and that having to write that piece, again, thinking about 
voice and tone and not relying on jargon. I mean, jargon's a big thing that we, um, it's our shorthand academics and it's laziness. And being told by my editor at Harvard for this last book that I couldn't use words that I had depended on for years. She's like, I don't want performance in there. I don't want any words with I-T-Y at the end or isms. Um, and really realizing that I don't need those words. I just have to think about communicating and expressing ideas um, in a different sort of way. Um, so for me, it's not been dumbing it down. It's actually been, I think, pumping it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's interesting because, I mean, when I was religion correspondent at the BBC, there were certain scholars I wouldn't go to interview, even though I knew their scholarship was very rigorous and very yeah. good. I went for those who could speak fluently and concisely and yeah. without jargon and also unpatronizingly, um, yes, yeah. which is a skill. It is. It's a skill I'm still learning how to how to do. Um, so I have a, a story I like to tell about one reason I am I've currently sort of leaned in on doing more media and public work is because I had an interaction with the New York Times a couple years ago where I had a lovely conversation with a reporter for 45 minutes. And the whole time I was thinking he is asking the wrong questions about this topic. And I got off the phone and I was like, oh, and I also was giving the wrong sorts of answers. Um, media is always an opportunity for scholars, always. Like if he's asking the wrong questions, it's my job to figure out how to change the question and change the conversation. Um, and I was saying, oh, this is so bad. You know, a lot of, it's more complicated than that. It's, you know, certainly you have to use more nuance and not realizing that he has 700 words. Um, and it's my job to help figure out what's the best use of that if we're going to increase religious literacy sort of, you know, in media coverage. Um, I think that there is a little bit of, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot. I think it's a little bit like sisters. There's a little bit of, um, it's not animosity, but there's a misunderstanding of sometimes journalists and scholars. Um, and so I was thinking about this in terms of like my own family dynamic. Uh, I went through a period with my middle sister where everything I said she thought was critical of her. And I feel and that, um, you know, I was a know-it-all and I was, you know, a uh, big brain and was very just critical, but she didn't understand what she did. And then I sort of thought everything... Um, was coming from her. She didn't think I was cool enough, didn't want to hang out with me. This sort of certain dynamic happens between scholars, I think, and journalists, where journalists sometimes think that we don't appreciate what they do and how hard their craft is. And scholars feel like journalists don't understand that we're not just a pull, we don't just want to be a pull quote or a soundbite. Like we want to help, we want to help shape and we want to be taken seriously, not just as someone who is an expert who can, again, give you that like sort of like soundbite, but also we think about that we spend all our time thinking about this and we know you're diving in for a story but let us help you certainly we have some expertise and some background that can help you shape that story in a bigger way so i think there's this like misunderstanding and lack of mutual respect and appreciation sometimes and at least i found that once you can build like a personal relationship with someone and kind of raise that level of respect then you can have a really great working relationship but we're not taught to do that no one trains you in graduate school how to talk to the media uh, in fact, no one taught me, even Northeastern, as wonderful and supportive as they've been, when I started getting all these requests to do interviews or write op-eds or write pieces, I sort of went and said, can I have some media training? And they're like, well, what do you mean? Like, we don't do that. Um, um, we don't really know how to do that in the academy. And so thinking about how to self-train and find people who are doing it well and ask them how they do it and ask for advice and try to form you know, a cohort of people who you feel like are have some best practices, but we're kind of making it up as we go right now. I think maybe one of the differences is is 
uh, deadlines and yeah. the times that you work in that sometimes I would pick up the phone and need mm-hmm. to talk to someone to give me a bit of depth yeah. but they only had 10-15 minutes before I needed to run on air with it or something so yeah. um, you know I would probably be perceived to be being impatient and yeah. rushing them along also I think journalists have to come to the top line that the nut graph or the you know mm-hmm. they have to tell you what this story is about and why you want to listen. It's not the way you write in academia. So, you know, you're yeah. building up uh, an argument. So it's it's just a, a very different skill, you're right. And I'm wondering how much you, you've been leading a project co-funded by Loose, which yeah. also funds this podcast, um, to improve collaboration. Is this what you're trying to do to kind of understand each other better, the scholars and the journalists? Yeah, that's exactly what we're trying to do. Um, for me personally, that, that's happened through two big parts of this project. One is I'm co-teaching an upper-level journalism class with a journalism professor. Um, so someone who really who teaches what is a lead, what is a nut graph. I love the word. I love nut graph. I think I say every scholar who wants to do public scholarship needs to write their own nut graph. They need to know. It's not about branding yourself. You need to figure out who you are and who your public scholar persona is. Um, but anyway, so going through that class with her, we're currently editing those pieces. Um, and learning about what that craft looks like has really helped me. Um, that's also been a course where our journalism students don't take religion classes. They don't have space usually in their um, in their schedule. Um, so it's a way I trick them all to kind of come on board by telling them we're going to do this great course not only on religion and reporting, but it's on international reporting. And we're going to Granada, Spain, and we're going to do a week over spring break and really... Um, you're going to report on the ground um, and you're going to have a journalism professor pushing you and your craft and you're going to have a religious studies scholar um, really pushing to make sure that you're using turns and concepts and frames correctly. Like you're not going to get away with sloppy um, religion reporting. Either. But it's so, going to be in Granada. So that was quite, Granada, so that's quite an incentive. <laughs> I'm going to bring you to Granada. So, and, you know, we have 15 students who did it and I have other scholars who are part of the program who came in and, and sort of did guest lectures Um so for me, that was learning about uh, what their craft is like and really understanding uh, where scholars can be helpful in your intervention. Um, the other piece of that is we had a great workshop we hosted at Northeastern where we brought religion reporters to Boston and some scholars who were interested in doing public-facing scholarship, a very small group. I think there are about 16 of us. And we spent the day sort of just talking about exactly the kind of things you're talking about like you know I'm a journalist when when I email you I need you to get back to me like right away and if you can't talk in the next 30 minutes you need to just tell me I can't talk and let me move on and sort of thinking about the constraints of being a journalist or you you know or also a professor being like well but so you know I work 80 hours a week I mean it's not like I just fly in and teach my two classes I'm also so if I don't get back to you it doesn't mean that I don't you know I'm not, don't respect you and your deadline. Just maybe that my email inbox is sort of crazy that day. So talking about sort of our own kind of constraints and um, maybe even bad experiences we've had or fears that we have as scholars talking to journalists. Um, and is it about fear of being taken, quoted out of context? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, yeah. so I think that journalists um, assume that, well, you know, I'm talking to journalists, you're on the record. You should just assume anything you say is on the record. But like, I'm not on the record in my classroom. I mean, I don't even know what I say half the time. You know, we sort of aren't thinking about our words in, in that sort of careful way all the time. So real concern that maybe you won't understand the context and it will be embarrassing to me and I'll be quoted in a story that I don't sort of support. But of course, it's not journalists' job to make me look good. 
Um, and I need to recognize that as well. So I need to do the work before I pick up the phone call and call you back to think about, all right, your story is about X. I want to get across one, two, three. Like, and I need to do that work before we have the conversation because that's my job. It's not your job to like sift through a fun 45-minute hour conversation to figure out what one, two, three is. I have to do that work. And so this this conversation with the workshop was wonderful and we built a lot of um, – I think we have a lot of relationships going forward. Um, but yeah, that's exactly what the project is about, trying to figure out how to communicate better. Your last book, Pious Fashion, really did very well in reaching a different public from just the scholarly, although it was a Harvard University Press imprint. Um, but you've given a talk at a textile museum, you've been blogging and writing articles, but it's a very culturally hot topic, right? And you were addressing some misconceptions about all Muslim women have to dress and cover in a certain way, and it's always a sign of oppression. Yeah, that's right. So pious fashion um, has done really well, partly because of the topic. People are very interested in it. Um, and I, the you know the message of the book in some ways is very simple, that no matter what a lot of non-Muslim people in the West think, it's not an easy sign of oppression or even an overzealous form of piety. It's much more complicated. And if you want to understand uh, the power that women's dress has and um, the politics of it and not only the ethics but the aesthetics, you have to really go do a deep dive on location. So the book features sort of three different Muslim-majority countries and looking at again, the power of women's um, clothing and sort of the network of pressures that they're operating under when they decide what to get dressed, what to wear every day. And that's really... And that's, you talk about three countries, Iran, Indonesia, and Turkey, and they have different pressures and different forms of expression. And And I was thinking, Iran, I've been to all of those countries, and in Iran, it was fascinating to me that I was expecting a very oppressive regime. Uh, Everyone had to wear the chador. Uh, I got off a plane with my female producer, and we put our chadors on, and... uh, immediately two women came up to us put red lipstick on us and pushed them back to pull our hair out and I guess I read in your book that's called bad hijab is it oh if you they sort of they sort of um dolled you up a little bit uh it was was their way of saying okay we'll go so far with these rules but we're also this is our sign of, of rebellion. If That's you like. right. I mean, so Iranian women who are particularly, I was working with young women, so mostly women who are under 25. You know, these are all girls who are born after the revolution. This is not a choice. It's a compulsory legal requirement. And it's uh, until quite recently, there's actually been very interesting protests about um, not wearing headscarves at all. But until quite recently, women are like, fine, it's a, it's a law, but we're going to define what counts as proper hijab here. And we're going to figure out where we want to push the boundaries. And what's been very interesting in Iran, if you take sort of a long view, is the fashion trends have really expanded what is seen as permissible in Iran today. So bad hijab is the kind of thing that would get you in trouble with the morality police or get you um, made fun of by your friends if you were wearing something that was seen as a little too risque. Um, but the more women do that, the more it pushes what's considered moderate and okay hijab and what you can kind of get away with in terms of color and cut and and patterns. So um, yeah, that's the kind of... And also the book is um, has these wonderful photographs because I, photo, I collaborated with local photographers and didn't just use my... My, my own sort of amateur photography from the field. And so then you get to see what these three different women, these three locations think of as cool. And you have sort of this collection of 
of items. I mean, so I also want to say that one reason why that book has done well, I think, is because the topic, it's a hot topic, but it's also a book I wrote in a really different way than any other book I did. And Harvard really pushed me to do that and supported me in doing that, which is that it's really written in much more my, it's much more conversational. It's much more my teaching voice. It involves a lot of stories, um, the kind of stories I tell in classrooms um, to make more complicated theoretical, you know, the nuanced complexity, all that stuff is there, but it's sticky and it stays with you because there are stories and that's how we kind of learn. So I think, although I think people would say it's really done well just because of the topic and we have such an obsession with the headscarf. I I hope that what I learned in that book was also just how to communicate um, to a broader audience. And that's the kind of work or the kind of voice I want to take into writing in the future. We've got the hashtag Me Too movement. Uh, There's been some debate and some reticence among Muslim women to join it. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, this is actually really, I've been thinking about this last couple of weeks because one thing that came out of this workshop in March is that a reporter, a freelance reporter, and I decided to co-report a piece for Teen Vogue, which should be out soon. And one of the, actually two pieces, and one of the pieces was about um, Mona Atahawe, who is the woman who started actually the um, Mosque Me Too hashtag. Yeah, there, there was a, um, some resistance from Muslim women in the beginning participating in terms of sharing stories. And it's, it's very understandable because as soon as a woman, a Muslim woman puts out a story about a Muslim man assaulting her, abusing her, all the sort of alt-right, um, Islamophobic, anti-Muslim racist sort of critics will be like, aha, see, we told you, Muslim men, yeah. And also those on the liberal secular left as well. Yes, right, yes. These poor, right, then that's your double bind, right? You're both, both within the community. Um, and Mona talks about this a lot in terms of her um, uh, sort of putting that, well, I should put this hashtag out there that you are, Muslim women are, whatever they put out becomes picked up by either side as sort of evidence of, see, oh, Islam is bad for uh, women or um, Islam, the Muslim community is much more misogynistic than, you know, misogyny and patriarchy is everywhere. And that's sort of her point. And the Mosque Me Too um, hashtag really was a way for Muslim women to feel supported by being able to report and um, talk about this in community and with the support of each other. Mona Tahawi started, has been talking for a while now about um, a groping that happened to her during the Hajj, which is sort of like unbelievable if you understand the the sort of importance of the Hajj as sort of this moment of, you know, um, reflection and piety and virtue and then that that a man felt that he could, you know, grope her buttocks and her, you know, and her breast during that is sort of unbelievable. And her sharing that story um, was very powerful on women, especially on Twitter, you know, that's just been really incredible to see worldwide people um, sharing these kind of stories and being this is not about shaming Muslim men this is about calling out misogyny and patriarchy everywhere she's a rare character isn't she the Egyptian American blogger writer activist and uh, uh, in many ways a a pioneer yeah she is I'm really looking forward this piece that we wrote about her for Teen Vogue I'm really looking forward to it coming out because she is um she's a pioneer and she's just very radical. I mean, I think for me, the the Me Too movement has been for me this really great learning moment, um, sort of of, you know, what what this radical feminist politics and solidarity and support can kind of look like. Um, And she's a great example of that from the Muslim community. Just I really, I really admire her and see her sort of brave sort of leadership as something that um, is something to look up to and try to, you know, follow her footsteps. 
Do you think that academia is, I mean, we've, we've had stories of hashtag me too within academia. Is this a really important moment for you as a female scholar? Yeah, that is such, such an interesting question. I think when me too first came on my radar, and so I have to admit I only sort of came on my radar when it was picked up by white women of privilege, because that's what I am. I think when I first uh, responded as, yep, me too, um, I was thinking much more of it in terms of my personal life or if I'm doing, you know, res- I do a lot of research abroad, so having um, incidents when I'm abroad, incidents when I'm abroad. But I have been thinking a lot about it in terms of the academy. Now, I would say at first my reaction is this doesn't affect, this has not affected me in terms of my um, training or my career. Um, on one hand, that's because of my position of privilege, of, of a white woman trained at elite institutions with really wonderful male um, mentors, um, but also... And who's now got tenure. Right, exactly. Like, I, I, I am not vulnerable in the same kind of way that other uh, women are. Um, but also, I think my initial reaction is actually a little BS, because I do think that there's a lot of sexism in the academy. Um, I can see it most... The biggest effect I see on me personally is that women are not cited, um, particularly in Islamic studies, uh, at the same rate that men are. We are just ignored in footnotes and citations, and that matters. Um, but I also think that I've noticed it, like I have, um, Me Too made me sort of very appreciative of women who support other women, and it's made me much bolder in my institution. I, I will I will not put up with any sort of mansplaining at a departmental meeting anymore. I will um, not sort of... Um, put up with, I, I'm always always much more willing right now to sort of lean in and mentor and um, try to help, uh, you know, women and, and, and people of color who are, you know, on the job market or thinking about how to navigate the, the institution. I, th- I think that this, the sexism in the academy is, is definitely really there and real. I'm really looking forward to it. I actually just ordered Kelly Baker's new book about this. It's sitting on my desk at home, and my first summer reading is going to be that. I'm sure I'll come out much more angry and full of rage after that. Do you sense the younger generation of scholars coming through, younger women scholars, have a different attitude, different oh, expectations? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, so I'm learning a lot from younger scholars. I feel like that is where I'm learning the most about how I want to be a public scholar and how I want to be a public feminist scholar. Um, I've been on Twitter for exactly like a month and I love Twitter because both uh, black Twitter, lady Twitter and like sort of young activist Twitter is really active and they really push me to think about things in ways I haven't. So I I mean, everything, I think that particularly young scholars are much more media savvy and much more social media savvy and get that engaged, engaged scholarship is more the norm now for them and partly the way that they see their job, that they're not just teaching their 25 students um, every semester or 30 students or however big your class is, 100 students, um, and they're not just writing books uh, for um, impressive university presses to get tenure, but they really want to you know, be part of the conversation and shift the conversation. Yeah. It's, it's part of their identity. They want to walk their talk. Are you saying that? Yeah, that I think they that's They live right. it? Yeah, I think that, well, at least the, the people that I've been following, those are the people that I really admire and am trying to learn from. Um, that it's not, um, it's that intersectional thing. It's like, you know, all parts have to um, sort of be leaning to some some sort of goal. And it just, it's, you know, it's radical, it's out there, it's political, it's not apologetic about that. And um, I, I'm learning, I am learning a lot. And yeah. Your latest project is yeah. 
Stealing Your Religion. You're mm -hmm. writing a book about religious appropriation. Can you explain? Give me some examples of what you're working on. Yeah, so this, um, I'm having so much fun with this book. This is partly a book focused, wanting to focus much more on the U.S., which I haven't before, and focused on, I mean, it sort of comes out of, there's a lot of moral outrage over cultural appropriation, and it comes really from my students who I, um, I see drop that sort of accusation on a lot of um unauthorized borrowings, um, but don't really have a very good understanding of what they mean when they say it. They, they are much more attuned to when um, white folks steal things from black folks, basically, right? When they're take, when especially around the issues of race, when things are, are taken out of context or stolen or used for financial gain, they're less aware of when this happens with religion. Um, so a lot of my students would identify as spiritual but not religious, um, but they and they would but they'd be totally fine to like do meditation and, and ad hoc take aspects of yoga and not others or other you know I'm gonna I want to go to Passover because I mean, that's a cool I'm gonna have my own sort of secular Passover or secular Lent. They're looking for ways to be happy and um, well-rounded and have well-being and they're looking to religion sort of to pick and choose from and they're not thinking about how that might also have ethical ambiguity behind it sometimes it's good sometimes it's bad and why know. can you give me an example because yeah. I would say well Christianity obviously borrowed from paganism it's yeah. was ever thus we're constantly recreating and coming up with new theologies yeah. so what's wrong with that yeah so it's I don't think it's ad hoc wrong but I guess my concern is not that religious appropriation or borrowings from religion are always a problem but sometimes there's an erasure um, and then also in other cases there may be a, a an issue where the practice itself does some damage. Um, another one of the chapters I'm looking at is um, fashion. Um, so anything from like Coco Chanel's use of crosses or the Madonna sort of cross thing to some more recent stuff that comes out of my last book in terms of hijab and mosque clothing. The hijab since sort of the 2017 March has become a sign of women's solidarity almost, so where people will put it on as an act of solidarity. Um, on World Hijab Day, for example, which is in February every year. And sometimes they wear an American flag as a sign of patriotism and solidarity with the Muslim community. And that's problematic um, for some Muslim women, particularly because it, it literally covers women in the sort of narrative of American patriotism in a way that they're like not so sure that they want to be part of. They're still, you know, let's pay attention to the fact that the U.S. is also raging also has a history of military campaigns targeting the Muslim world. And I'm not so sure I'm comfortable, you know, sort of what I hear from Muslim women with the idea of a, of a flag representing my, my tradition and, and my identity. Plus, I don't know that I think about you wearing it. Here I'm wearing the U.S. as a choice in terms of the cultivation of my character and my identity for you to put on in a day in solidarity and think that you can wholly empathize with my experience by the end of that. Is, is not something necessarily that you know Muslim women are going to agree with. So the book is really taking some of these cases and pulling them apart and showing that uh, religions are not necessarily there for us just to pick and choose ad hoc from. And sometimes there are good, wonderful um, results for that. And sometimes there it creates um, negative effects on, on the religious tradition or the believers, the practice itself. And we should just kind of be aware of that, which I don't think my students are. They think that religions, you appropriate religions, it's totally fine because religions are fair game. Um, and I want to sort of put it more conversation with these conversations we've had more broadly about cultural appropriation.
Fascinating. I look forward to reading it. Thank you very much, Liz Buca. Thank you. This is fun. And you've been listening to The Square, a podcast of the religion and its publics project at the University of Virginia. With thanks to the Luce Foundation, I'm Jane Little.